Church, thank you for your worship and song. Now let's turn to our worship in the Word. Beginning in Acts chapter 4, we'll look at verses 1 through 21, uh, mostly through that today. Uh, This morning, we're just simply looking at the narrow road that the gospel gives us, that really even in this sermon um, that Peter gives as he is addressing some of the spiritual leaders and some of those who would rise up in adversity against the church. So the context that we've been in over the past few weeks, the Spirit of God has descended at Pentecost. Uh, He has filled up the people of God. They are preaching. God is saving people. Uh, The multitudes, literally by the thousands, are coming to know Christ for the first time. The fullness of the gospel is all very new in the life of the church. Some strange things are happening. It's a time of disruption. It's a time of a a little bit of, of disorder that exists in the life of the church. And one of the reasons why we go through the book of Acts this summer is because I believe that the principles that God has given the early church thousands of years ago are the same principles that he wants the church to abide by today. Nothing's changed, nothing's different. Like same thing, same mission, same purpose. Glorify our Father in heaven as we exalt Christ through the Spirit and in the power of the Spirit. But our culture is changing. And we see that. This week was particularly a tough week in just pastoral ministry. And I'm not telling you that to to get any sympathy from you, but just as one of your elders, we sort of had a tough thing to deal with this week that we had never dealt with in the history of Travis. One, we, uh, I'd asked the elders when COVID happened in the pandemic, has the church ever gone through something like this? No, we will be the first. Great. Has the church ever experienced um, cultural turmoil like we're experiencing right now? Nope. Like this is the first time that like our church is having to deal with this to, to the level and to the degree. So about a week and a half ago, we got an email from a young lady who was a TCU graduate, was finished in law school in Florida, but grew up on the south side of Fort Worth. And the email went something like this, uh, pastor, partner, Travis Avenue on the south side. God's called me to bring about change in our city and I'm, I'm organizing a, a march, a protest that we're gonna start somewhere down on Hemp Hill and Barry, and we would like to use your parking lot to at least park and then we're gonna start down at the park just down Barry. Would it be okay if, if we used your parking lot? That was the question. Now with that, pastorally speaking, my mind starts running a whole different bunch of directions. What are we protesting? What exactly is the aim? What are we, what are we shooting for? Is this a, uh, a protest that we're going to go and, and we're trying to, to stir up um, civil unrest and start breaking? Like, what, where, what's our motivation? Where are we at? She said, well, I'm coming alongside my pastor. My mom is the secretary at this church across from 35 African-American church. Um, we have a, a spiritual purpose that we want to march for justice according to his word. And we want to speak up uh, for those that can't speak for themselves. So as a pastor, I'm like, well, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, I, don't, I don't have any issues with that. We, we wholeheartedly believe in the statement that black lives matter. We said it's the very minimum uh, that we agree with. Of course they matter. Um, and and we, we are for that theologically. We have no problem semantically with that statement and standing for it. We have no problem as a church calling out racism as a sin. We've said that before. At the same time, as we move forward in our culture, we are not going to be a people that demean police officers. They are not our enemy. 
And they are not the enemy of, of African Americans either. And so we are going to elevate the, the role of, of law enforcement. We're going to call when, when reforms are necessary and, and better training should be the, 100% we're for that. And we're wrestling with the tension in today's culture where, where there are so many layers and textures of, of the meanings of words. And, and you, you almost like to have a conversation with people about this, like, can you tell me what you mean by that? Like it's an old interview technique. When somebody asks you a question and you're not sure exactly what, what they're asking, you say, can you define what you mean by, by some of those things so we can make sure that we're speaking about the same thing? Because sometimes for me personally, when, when certain statements are used, as I'm just wrestling through this like many of you are pastorally, I need to know, well, how are we defining some of these terms? And some of the founders of the BLM movement, originally, I'm quoting straight from the, there were three ladies in particular that started it. They, they've recently come out and just said, we, we are cultural Marxists. Like we're not pretending, like we're Marxists. Like we would 100% are. And listen, I, I'm not gonna give us a, a school us in a lesson of, of history, but when Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, communism in itself on the conservative level has killed of closer to, to 80 to 120 million people. We are against it. We want to voluntarily um, offer up our needs and things, but, but to have someone compel us to do that from, from a structural or a system thing, we, I'm sorry, not doing that. It's not biblical. And so this request comes to the church. What, what do you do? How do we participate? So we have a conversation. We define the terms. And I, I went home and told Haley, I said, this was a Tuesday, and and Matt Getty was involved. We were having conversations and um, I was telling my wife what was going on. And she just said, hey, this is why we have elders. I said, you're exactly right. Got an elder meeting tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. I'm going to talk about it. It's going to be the bulk of our conversation. Should we? Shouldn't we? What should we do? What should we not do? Here's where we circled around. The reason why I'm telling you all this is because I don't want you to hear later on this week some rumor or innuendo or if someone's going to slant something a certain way. I'm just telling you what happened because I'm not ashamed of it and, and I'm for it. So what we did, we just said, okay, listen, um, some of our elders were traveling and gone. Terry Coy and myself, we said, we're going to show up. Um, I'm going to go get uh, cases of water, and we're going to serve these people that are coming to our community, that, that maybe we have different ideals, we have different vantage points of this, we recognize that, we're going to serve them, and I'm going to go with the purpose that I'm going to make sure that as they're talking about justice, that we make sure that we are talking about justice on the terms, if we are Christians, on what biblical justice is. And that justice that is separated from the gospel of Jesus Christ, it ultimately turns into not justice, but rather vengeance very quickly. And the thing that we're wrestling with as a church that is disruptive as a, as a culture and as a community and, and as a nation is, is here's the reality. God does not reconcile racists. He only reconciles the hearts of those who hold that view. And so we believe, I believe emphatically, that the root issue of all of this resides inside man's heart, inside my heart. And does it affect broader categories and broader things? Of course it does. 
And so we came and served. I met an individual who was about 27 years old. When I looked at him, I thought he was maybe 21 or 22. He was much older than I thought. Didn't look like me, wasn't dressed like me, was very standoffish. I could tell that in the, in the group of about 50, I'm an introvert and I can identify introverts very, very quickly because he was standing off to the side just like this. I'm like, this guy has my personality. I get this. I feel you. I don't know you, but I feel your pain right now. And so I went and talked to him. So what's your name? Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Here local. He said, I'm actually uh, uh, ex-military. I, I served in the army, served three tours, two in Iraq, one in Afghanistan. I said, no kidding. He said, yeah, I went in right after high school and I stayed in until I was about 26. And I said, tell me why you're here today and why are you a part of, of this church doing this and emphasizing this? He said, well, we're, we're here to plead for justice. And I said, my friend, I, I'm, I'm, I wanna plead with you, but I said, let me ask you this. Do you, do you know the Lord? Do you know him? And he said, yeah, I, I do know the Lord. And I said, good, because I, I'm, I'm going to stand beside my brothers and sisters as we seek the welfare of our city under the direction and the authority of the Lordship of Jesus. We want justice here in this church, do we not? We do. But we're in this, in this place where all these voices are, are, it's like John the Baptist, they're crying out in the wilderness, and it's like, which voice do I listen to? I mean, listen, Twitter and social media, can we just say, they're, they're just kind of cesspools. Like you wake up, what are we mad about today? Somebody's always mad, there's always a cause, there's something, oh, I didn't know, I need to be mad about this today, right? And like, sort of get put in this, in this position. And this is why Acts is so instructive for his people today, because here's the truth. Out of all the voices that are crying out in the wilderness, the thing that was true for the early church in Acts is still true for us today. The voice, the only voice we are to be listening to and running to and seeking to listen to is the voice of the Lord. It's making sure that we are hearing from him. And so we have this moment in Acts 4 where God is saving the multitudes, the leaders in, in, in a power position are sort of become threatened by it. And so I want you to notice, beginning in verse one, as the text begins to unfold, and he says, they were speaking to the people, these priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them. The Sadducees, they were the, the theological liberals of their day. And I say that because the Sadducees, there were two things that, you know where I'm going with this, right? They did not believe in the miracles, of Christ, and they did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So therefore, they were always sad, right? They were sad, you see. Get it? Another dad joke on Father's Day. Don't boo me. Who did, Graham, just put your thumb down at me, right? So they were speaking. These theological liberals come up, and then it says they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they arrested these guys and they put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. One of the things that I want you to notice in the text, I want you to notice the message that they were being held hostage to, particularly what it says in verse two, what exactly they were in trouble for. Notice in verse two, it says, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people, what? Proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. 
In other words, what was happening with the disciples that is instructive for us today is that the apostles were not preaching rules, they were preaching relationship. He's pointing them to to the resurrection power that there are implications into believing in Jesus and calling upon his name that will affect our relationship with him. And so they're not preaching this list of rules saying you've got to have this income or live in this house or drive this car or have this type of family or this type of occupation. They're not focusing, get this, on the things that you're supposed to be doing. But rather the emphasis of the apostles' teaching was on rather not what you're doing, but on who you are becoming as a person as you are following him. Now we can't miss this. To paraphrase another philosopher, the most important thing in your life is not what you do, but rather who you are becoming. We tend to focus on what we're doing. What are we doing to to achieve the goal, to to get the job, to to apply for the college, to get acceptance, to to grant admission, to, to, to win favor with our bosses? What are we doing? All the while, what's happening is in the process, culturally speaking too, we're neglecting the people that we're becoming because of that. And we become people void of, of, of virtue and, and principle and we begin to, to treat people in undignified ways and, and we rob them oftentimes of their God-given dignity. Don't focus on what you're supposed to do, but rather focus on who you are supposed to become. Who Jesus has called you to be and what he has done for you to find your identity out of that thing. But notice the grit in the disciples as they face this adversity. On the next day, their rulers in verse five and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias the high priest and Cephas and John and Alexander and all were of the high priestly family. Here's all the religious people coming before. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name are you healing this man? This lame man of 40 years, who in the world? Like you can hear it. It's, it's who do you think you are to do this? What power, what authority, who gave you permission? Then it says, Peter, verse eight, filled with the Holy Spirit says to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you, every one of you people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has come, the cornerstone. And we don't build houses like we used to back in Jesus' day or even how we used to build them 40 or 50 years ago, but the cornerstone used to be the most pivotal piece to go into the foundation of any house because every other rock and every other stone was laid upon that cornerstone. You found your, your, your plumb line. You, you found your, your even space that, that gathered across. And, and so this cornerstone was everything to the concept of the building. It was the most important stone in the entirety of the building. And what he's saying to to these religious leaders, this Jesus who was the stone, he was the cornerstone, you rejected him. And he goes on in verse 12 and he says that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friend, the road of the gospel is a narrow road. 
It's inclusive in the sense that, that God welcomes all, but he loves us too much when he calls us to allow us to stay the, as we are. And he says, come as you are, but, but, but once we encounter Christ, once we encounter the person of Jesus and he changes us, we leave different people. And the road of the gospel, it, it's a narrow one. It's a, it's a small one. It's an exclusive one. The gospel tells us elsewhere in John's gospel, he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus. That's it. There's no other way according to scripture. There's no other opportunity. There's no no second chance. There's no third chance. Like he's the way and the truth and the life and you cannot, you cannot get to the Father apart from the Son. Many will claim that claiming Jesus is the only way to God is, is the height of arrogance. And in some ways, it, 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 it is. Because we believe, as Christians who believe in this book, that, that this is the way, that God is true to his word and he, and he doesn't make things up, like he means it when he says, there's no coexist here in the, in the kingdom. We may coexist in this earth with common grace and enjoy each other and have separate beliefs, but ultimately, I have to believe, if I believe the Bible to be true, that those who die apart from the forgiveness of sins that is given through Jesus, then, then you enter into a place of, of eternal separation from God. It's a real place. It's not a make-believe. It's not a pretend. Like it's an actual place. And and when he says there's no salvation and, and no one else, there's no other name by which you must be saved. At the same time, there are those that would critique and just say, listen, religion in general is a subjective thing. The, the father of modern philosophy, Immanuel Kant, he, he made this statement where he says this, that religions are subjectively helpful but not objectively true. In other words, out of this one idea that, that Kant sort of brings forth in, into philosophy, we've, we've run with it into modernity and postmodernity. What's good for you, man, it, 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 it's good for me, it may be different for you, but if it's good for you and as long as it doesn't sink the ship that I'm on, then I'm okay with, with you believing whatever that is and, and us getting along and, and going along together. Religions are subjectively helpful but not objectively true. Well, the problem with that is, is that we know that the Bible doesn't seem to proclaim it that way. How does the Bible teach it? I think one of the ways to illustrate this is to use an analogy that that I've seen within the Buddhist religion, having been to to Malaysia and and traveling uh, to different parts of the world where you encounter individuals that have uh, a variety of views on on a lot of different things, specifically when it comes to how do I get to heaven. There was this uh, Buddhist metaphor that went something like this. There was this group of blind men that lived in this village and this elephant was brought to the village now, the blind men were told, there's an elephant, but we can't, uh, you can't see it, so we're going to let you come and touch the elephant. And so each of these blind men gathered around the elephant, and they began to touch him. And so one of the blind men got the elephant's leg, and, and he was just sort of putting his arms and his hands all the way around, and he said, this elephant, it feels rough to the touch, and the skin is, is very coarse. It almost feels sturdy like a tree trunk. This animal must look like a tree. 
The other blind guy gets behind the elephant. He begins to sort of grab its tail and, and the tail's flapping around and, and he says, this tail, it, it feels uh, bristly and, and sort of wiry and, and it's fluid and it's moving around and, and, and that's what this elephant must look like. Well, the other guy, it gets on the front of the elephant and he finds the tusk and he's grabbing the tusk. And he's like, this elephant is hard, but he's smooth. This is what he must look like. The fourth or fifth guy goes and he grabs the ear of the elephant and, and the elephant's wa- waving his ears in the air, moving his ears around. He said, oh, this elephant is, is like a giant fan. And, and, and so these blind guys get together and, and they begin to talk about their experience and they each begin to describe their varying experience to the point where they had so convinced themselves that their truth was the right truth that they begin to argue with one another and begin to speculate that the other blind men at the table were not telling the truth about the elephant. And secularists will say, well, listen, this is a point to our religion in our culture. It's subjective based on the experience, and that's what this teaches us. But we go, wait a minute. We get what you're saying, and we understand that, but but see, the thing that you're trying to prove by, 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 your, by your very form of argument, you're actually proving something on the opposite end because you see, there was a narrator telling this story, decreeing and speaking this story, describing and telling what the elephant is from an ontological level, what his being, this is an elephant. He has a tail, he has ears, he has tusk, he has coarse skin, he, he has smooth tusk. The narrator is the one that declares the objective truth. And what this teaches us is that all of our experience in life must be measured up and put up against this, not the other way around. That it's not true that that religion is, 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 is subjectively helpful but not objectively true. We would say if Kant was here today, we would say no, um, religion is objectively true and it is objectively helpful to us. It leads us down the correct path and then it objectively shows us then how to live and and how to walk and abide in those things. For there is salvation in in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given on which men must be saved. One of my favorite missionaries to, to read and to read about is a guy by the name of Hudson Taylor. And I feel like one of my responsibilities to you is to point you to the word of God. But when I come across good books that have influenced me over the decades, I want to make sure that I share them with you. Um, every once in a while, some of you will ask me, hey, what are you reading right now? And, and, and one of the things that I can't recommend enough is this book called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. It just tells the story of, of one of the first missionaries to ever travel to mainland China and who committed his life there for, for decades to hear and to see those that were far from God come to know him. And, and, and Dr. Taylor um, was famous for sort of uh, griping a little bit about how uh, he made this general statement that he could not stand to be in English churches full of thousands of Englishmen singing about the gospel. He was so dissatisfied and it was so unnerving in his spirit because there were millions upon millions of people in mainland China who have yet to even hear of the good news of Jesus. And he says this, or he asks this question, or rather makes this statement, Would that God make hell so real that we cannot rest. 
Would God make hell so real that we cannot rest? And, and meaning for, for Hudson, it was this understanding that hell was a real place and that these that were perishing without Christ were going to be eternally separated from God. I've, I've shared this quote before from Carl Henry, just simply, the gospel is good news only if it gets there in time, my friends. It's only good news if it gets there in time. The text goes on in verse 13, and he says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. To be truthful, when I got to this place on Monday, I, I typically read through the Sunday text about seven or eight times. I just read the text over and over and over, and I sit on it, and I think about it. And it took me three readings to get past this last little part in, in verse 13. And it kept haunting me. It says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Hey, dads, guess what? I know today's about you, and I'm not, I'm not blasting you. You guys are good dudes, all right? You're good dads, not doing that. But here, here's a word of advice for all of us, myself included. Wouldn't it be great if this week our families and our friends looked into our life and somehow they were able to tell whether or not we had been with Jesus. I think that could be the highest compliment that I could ever give someone or receive from someone. They have been with Jesus. Have you ever been around someone that you know? They're walking with the Lord and you sense that, that God's hand is upon, I, I can count it maybe a handful of times. One of them, I was in a seminary class with uh, Dr. Richard Ross years ago. It was a 7.30 class that was like students in the roles of, of revivals and awakenings. And, and um, I would get there right around 7.30 and um, Dr. Ross would usually on time, uh, usually always on time, but every once in a while he'd come out a minute or two late and and he'd be like, sorry, I'm late. He's like, I, I've just been on my face and my hands and my knees talking to Jesus. And like you could, like he meant it. Like you're like, he's not lying. Like his face was glowing. It was shown bright like an angel, right? And you're like, speak, Lord, I'm here. You know, I'm listening. Like there were just a few of those times where it was like, ah, okay, well, whatever you say, I'll do, you know, in this moment. This is from the Lord. They have been with Jesus. They have been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them, charged them not to speak and teach at all in the name of Jesus. How do we know that we've been with Jesus? When we believe something to be true, we act as if it were true. These men believed in the things that they were saying and what they were talking about, so much so that it wasn't just head knowledge and intellectual assent, but they acted on it. Belief is wrapped up in action. Too often we think belief is a set of knowledge or, or it's wisdom or it's facts and information. Belief 
we really believe it leads to action. And so this week, my challenge to you is how, how should you act? What should you do? You know, yesterday was Juneteenth. Are you guys familiar with Juneteenth? Pretty important day. Uh, it's a day that, that obviously this, this year in particular has had more of an emphasis. But I've known about Juneteenth for, for a long, long time. Growing up in East Texas, it was a big deal uh, with, within certain groups. And, and let me tell you about Juneteenth and why we celebrate Juneteenth and why we should celebrate Juneteenth. You see, in 1863, 1862, Abraham Lincoln was working on the Emancipation Proclamation. He eventually uh, writes the Emancipation Proclamation declaring that, that slaves are free. And he decrees it. All slaves are free in the Union. But yet, in the Union, there were still people, though they had been declared free, were still living as slaves. And so about two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation is issued, General Gordon Granger of the Union Army finally makes his way down to Galveston, Texas. Almost two and a half years later, three months after Lee surrenders at Appomattox. And he reads the Emancipation Proclamation declaring slaves free who were freed two and a half years ago. And the whole point of, of recognizing this, and, and, and historians, they, they argue about, well, why did it take so long? And, and there's a lot of folklore involved in this. There, there's a rumor that, that the messenger that was given to go and to deliver it to the South, particularly in Texas, um, he was murdered on his way to tell him. Uh, there, there's, there's that rumor. Um, I, I think the most obvious answer on why it takes two years is that the Confederacy at the time, they did not recognize the authority that Abraham Lincoln was issuing, so they just ignored it. But legally, these slaves were free for two and a half years and didn't know it and lived in, in bondage because of it. Friends, is it possible that some of you here today, though you have been set free in Christ, are still living with the chains of sin wrapped around your ankles? Still living in bondage still struggling with some things that you haven't given over to the Lord or you've not confessed to, to your brother or sister or confessed to the Lord because he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Like you keep holding on to, to some aspect of your old life before Christ and you're just sort of bringing it along like you're a chain. And the truth of the gospel is that Jesus has set you free from those things. He set you free from your fear. He has set you free from, from any shame that you might feel. He has set you free from any condemnation you might feel from your past that you've brought. He has, has died to set the captives free. This is the gospel for us. And so we celebrate that good news. This morning, I want you to be free. I want you to experience that fullness that God intends for you to experience today. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us forgiveness of sins through your son, Jesus. that you tell us that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. 
And so, God, we ask that you, you would, would heal us of, of our fear, that you would heal us of our condemnation, that you would heal us of our shame, and that we would walk as, as captives who have been set free. God, would you help your people this morning? Lord, I pray for our church this morning that it would be said of us this week that we had been with Jesus. We want to be with you. Help us respond, God, not out of compulsion or fear, but out of compassion and mercy and love. With every head bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you you do not know Christ and what it means to have a relationship with him, there is nothing more than we would love to see you come to know Jesus as we do. We want you to be with him. I feel like some of you need to hear me say this as you pray and seek the Lord. God is not up here pointing a finger at you, condemning you. But our Father is here with open arms just saying, come weary sinner, come to me. Come those who labor and I will give you rest. Come and receive his rest. God, your grace is good. It is amazing. Let us rest in that this morning. For your people pray, amen.